It's the Saturday Friends Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome. Welcome once more over here to the Saturday Friends Club, our uh, our nice little meeting of us coming together, talking about the stuff that we love, our old-time favorites, everything. We've got the crew in today. A meeting of the minds, really. It, you know, we try and get the smartest, the best, the very... Uh, you know the cream of the crop. Uh, I am Josh. Over there is uh, is Eric. Yep, that's me. Uh, we got Martin once more in studio. I am here, alive and well. Yes, you're doing good, dude. <laughs> got that nice little flat top on. Snap, snap, bill to it. You know, works great for a for an audio podcast. Yep, yep. There you go. It's proof. Uh, Sabrina is here. Hello. So, repping it. And today, I am super happy to have a a remote friend. Uh, I am a super big fan of uh, of the site that this man works for, as well as just being a general all-around cool dude. Um, he is one Matt Rory of uh, Giant Bomb. Hello, how are you? I'm doing great, man. Uh, just for uh, just for the people that might be listening in, and of course, hopefully, uh, maybe a few uh, bombers out there, uh, just give us a little bit of your background. Uh, sure, well, I've been doing, uh, <clears throat> pardon my... Pardon my uh, of course, I began with clearing my throat. Um, I've been working in games uh, journalism for about 20 years now, since college, uh, off and on. Uh, worked at GameSpot, worked on a film site called Screened for a couple of years, worked in game development, and now I'm at uh, Giant Bomb, which is a kind of a fairly large video game website, video heavy, uh, a lot of podcasts, pretty po- popular podcasts on there too. Um, I do behind-the-scenes kind of stuff, uh, community support uh, merchandise, all the kind of behind the behind the scenes stuff that doesn't really, uh, not always super visible, but all the kind of stuff that kind of keeps the site running in the background. So, uh, it's kind of where I am at right now yeah. in my life. We, uh, I, I was kind of felt equal hearts of it of just like, oh, you're the you're the dude in the background keeping everything going to it, and I'm like, I have a sympathetic heart to that. Um, so uh, that that's awesome, and uh, yeah, and then I completely I don't know why I completely flaked on like, oh, dude, you did screened, which was a, a website completely about reviewing the movies that were coming out. Yeah, that lasted for about two years, so that was a fun experience. Um, <clears throat> a lot of work, a lot of hard work, but uh, it was. Uh, I hopefully people enjoyed it. People who still talk about it now seem to had a good time with it. It's not can't find it anymore. It got bought and deleted entirely, uh, so it's no longer existent. Um, but uh, did a lot of good work. Hopefully, yeah. There's there's a few there's a few clips like on YouTube that I saw poke up. That was like, hey, look at this. It's reference of him. Yeah, it's uh, YouTube was always kind of our our tough tough thing to get around because uh, back in the, the time we were doing it, it was like 2010 and 11. Uh, movie studios did not care for anything movie related going up on the on the on YouTube. It was a lot of copyright strikes. I think they've kind of eased up on it now. But uh, going back that far, we had our own website, obviously, so it was a little bit easier to get around that. But uh, doing anything on YouTube back in those days was was tough. Yeah, heady heady hard days of DMCA's and everything like that. Uh, well, yeah. anyway, anyway, Matt, great to have you on. Um, as we do it with every episode here, we have one of our wonderful uh, panelists decide a movie. And uh, I was super happy when we were just like trying to figure out, and you decided for today's choice. 
I picked Willow. Uh, it's one of the first movies that I really clearly recall seeing in a theater, uh, which is something that surprised me when I went back and looked at it because I would have been around nine or 10, which feels late to me. I'm sure I've seen many other things in the theater before that, but uh, it's one of the first, we had a big family. We were four kids and two adults. So it was a big deal to go out to the the movies on the weekends. Um, so it might've been not a super popular thing to do in the eighties. I probably, you know, I probably saw ET and all that other stuff, but yeah, Willow is definitely one of the first ones that I clearly recall seeing in a theater. Um, and obviously lately the news has been about Ron Howard coming in to help direct the, the Han Solo movie oh, and yes. directing Warwick Davis on set for that. And it's kind of their reunion because Ron Howard directed Willow back in 88. So that was been kind of the news too. So I figured I'd go back and take another look at, it. I haven't seen this movie in years. My girlfriend never seen it. Um, so I figured I'd go back and, and take a look. Yeah. And uh, what about the uh, crew we got over here? I know I've never seen Willow. It was one, always one of those like, oh, I've got to watch that damn movie. Everybody talks about it. And everyone was stopping you from watching it. Oh, absolutely. Just holding me down at every turn. Uh, it's it's it, it's held up pretty well. It's it's vaguely fondly remembered. I think it's for a lot of people who grew up in the 80s. It was it was a big, obviously a big promotional fantasy film. Uh, there are a lot coming out back in the 80s, too. But, uh, you know, I had that Lucas kind of semi-charm to it it's it's a well-made movie uh i wouldn't say it's aged extremely well uh it's not it's not gonna be it's not star wars despite how much it tries to want to be um <laughs> but it's 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 a decent enough film and it's, it's kind of it was kind of fun to go back and, and take another take another look at it oh i was i i felt that too there was like a lot of star wars and indiana jones like baked into this just down to like shots and things that happened so yeah lucas yeah. is stinking cla- all over this the classic wipes and everything Yo, the, the wipes got me it was like oh this is this really yeah. is star wars and they cut back it to was, endor it was one-to-one almost uh some of the some of the uh analogs um, so I guess for people who aren't familiar with the Willow, haven't seen it, it's a, a story about this young, uh, I guess they call it little, little person now. What, what, what are the name of the, uh, they, people, they call yeah. him Peck, they, they call him Peck in the movie, but it's uh, there's another name for, for Warwick Davis's race, but, uh, but you know, a, a fantasy quest to rescue the kingdom by finding the, delivering the, the Death Star plans to the rebels. And, you know, it's, it's very much kind of a, a hero's journey is what Lucas is known for. Uh, there's no real surprises in terms of what goes on in Willow, but uh, he has to deliver this young baby to this uh, these rebels who are fighting the evil queen, and the evil queen thinks the baby is the only thing that stops her from becoming all-powerful, and she wants to kill the baby, and everybody has to protect that. Um, it's very much the Death Star plans, getting it into the hands of the rebels, and then the rebels taking down the evil queen at the end of the movie. Um, yeah, Lucas kind of. I I I think he I think he said he wanted to make this movie a long time before it actually got made, uh, but it is very much even down to the R two D two C three PO characters. A little uh, little Kevin Pollock was playing those little uh, uh, brownies, uh, the 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 humor but comic relief kind of characters that that just kind of show up and have very small things to do but very important things to do. Uh, it's it's almost self-plagiarism at, at a certain point. Uh, Lucas was the story and executive producer. I don't think he wrote the screenplay, and obviously Ron Howard directed it, but it, it is very much a Lucas thing, front to back. It definitely feels that way. Um, let's see, Martin, uh, what's your what's your background? Have you ever seen this before? Never heard of it, being a 90s baby, so I'm just like, what the hell is this crap? <laughs> <laughs> and Sabrina, what about you? Had you seen it? Um. Well, I was born in 88 so i did i do remember seeing it but it was definitely a movie on tv sort of deal and i definitely saw it at least once or twice because i when we were watching it towards the end i recognized 
a lot of <laughs> especially the big monster i was like oh my god i totally remember that so yeah i've seen it at least once or twice when i was really young and what, what are your thoughts on 80s val kilmer um Val Kilmer's a really good-looking guy, so... Yeah. <laughs> he was... <laughs> this is, is pre-Top Gun, so he's not even Iceman yet. Wait, wasn't Top Gun, like, 86, I think? This is, might have been right after. I could have sworn I Top Gun say. was 89, but it could be right. Oh, Maybe, I could, oh, I could be wrong on that, too. It's time to fact-check this. Go Top to... Gun, uh, let's see, 86? Oh, oh. So yeah, it... so just after. Um, yeah, that's when I kind of took away from it too seeing Val Kilmer on this thing. Val Kilmer used to give a shit. Uh he I, <laughs> and then he did, I don't want to uh, say he doesn't, but I mean he everybody has that kind of like the Bruce Willis nowadays just doesn't care. Like he's coasting on his success. Val Kilmer kind of, you know, after Kiss Kiss Bang Bang kind of took some easy roles and, and did some bad stuff. But um <laughs> there was a time when he was super committed and you know obviously here he's just playing Han Solo, like, front to back. It's a Han Solo <laughs> oh, character. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, right down to the mannerisms. Like, he just is playing Han Solo. Um, but it's such a fun performance to watch. Like, uh, he just kind of mugs it up and, and gets into all the swordplay and everything like that. It's really just fun to see a, a, a charismatic performer doing an enter- entertaining role. All right. Well, let's go ahead and let's uh, let's break down. We've uh, we've gone through the basics, so let's go ahead and hit the... Uh, the the nitty gritty. Let's figure out if Willow is still a good movie in our year 2017. The year of our Lord. Yep. Let's go ahead and hit this button. All right, Willow. What do we have about Willow? Willow is a movie from 1988 about a reluctant... Whoa, hi, IMDB using the word dwarf. That's kind of much. Uh, Who must play a a critical role in protecting a special baby from an evil queen. Uh, Stars Val Kilmer, Joanne Whaley, Warwick Davis, uh, and... And Val Kimler. <laughs> Did I say Kimler? I came close. Uh, I tried my best. I'm trying to do. I'm trying to do good by you. Um, it is. You know, it's a. It's a '80s ass movie. Oh, this. I was saying this is in that pantheon of like of '80s movies. It's right up there with Lady Hawk and like Labyrinth, Dark Crystal. There's like the 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 kind of a rubber puppet heavy. 80s fantasy movies usually have kind of dark elements to them. And we covered the uh, great never-ending story last episode. Uh, there's a reason I have left guys, that one out. Have you guys ever done Kroll? Because Kroll is Ooh. like the other big... Oh, I've not 80s. done that. Uh, Kroll, is, Kroll is even more Star Wars than Willow is. Uh, Kroll down to the... Kroll is basically a Star Wars clone. Uh, that can, I think 82, 84, something like that. It is Star Wars and Fantasyland almost more than than Willow is. Uh, not to get off the subject, but no, Willow no, is very no. much a, oh, no. a we'll Star Wars to, movie. We'll have to add that to the list. That sounds perfect. Definitely go back and do Kroll. Kroll is, Kroll is uh, one of my movies that I'm, I'm more... Uh, what's the word for it? I have more of a sentimental point for Kroll than I do for Willow. Um, I, Kroll is a worse movie yes. <laughs> in most ways, but 
Uh, it's still fun to watch. So if you guys haven't done that one, I definitely maybe I'll come back at some point in the future. Hey, yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. Um, but Willow, Willow. I'm sorry, I I, I beat the uh, the theme music. It, the the plot is very much Star Wars. It's well executed, uh, you know, almost top to bottom. There's a stunning amount of extras too in this movie. Oh yes. Uh, they, they said it was the largest casting call for little people that that Warwick Davis had ever been in, um, like 250 to 400 <laughs> little wow. people all on one big set. The village scenes in the in the early part of the movie are, are just kind of you've seen. I mean, movies like this with little people in the large roles are basically like Willy Wonka uh, and Return of the Jedi, but they're all messed dressed up, of course. But uh, it was really interesting to see them commit to that whole kind of uh, village scene early on. Which also, obviously, this was before the Hobbit ever even. Nobody <laughs> even thought about making Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit into movies, uh, and you can tell. Lucas really wanted to kind of get that, you know, Shire-like vibe early on, this idyllic farming community that is taken over, or not taken over, but invaded very early on by evil forces. Um, There's a lot of Lord of the Rings in this. I was, I I noticed that down to, like, they go to, they go to basically Mordor at the end to watch Mm -hmm. two wizards fight in a tower. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Pretty perfect. Never happens in Lord of the Rings. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I know it's. It's really fascinating to see all the influences, but uh, again, the the weakness of the movie is that it's it's a Star Wars fantasy uh, that Lucas just couldn't help bear repeating himself. And obviously, he thought if you make Star Wars and make the the number one movie of all time uh, until ET come along t- comes along, you're you're going to be permitted to rest on your laurels a little bit and try to clone that success, but doesn't entirely work. Yeah, and he was stated and sta- and saying like, oh, he expected this to do the numbers that ET did. Like, yeah, you know, he was like, "Yeah, this will this will do ET numbers," and it obviously didn't. It made uh, fifty seven point three million at the box office up to its thirty five million dollar budget. Though did well on TV, did well in DVD sales, everything like that. It's a cult classic, obviously. Um, this is also, I think, uh, Return of the Jedi was eighty seven, eighty four, eighty three. Okay, still still way off, but uh, yeah. So this is this is his post Star Wars mid cocaine era. Um, I believe this is around the same time as Howard the Duck. So yes, it is slightly after <laughs> Howard the he Duck. He has he has a long way to go before he, he reaches the bottom. Well, he, it, um, I think Howard the Duck is definitely the part where it probably soured people, just going like, maybe this guy isn't perfect. <laughs> maybe it turns out he's a huge idiot. <laughs> well, that was the weird thing about Willow too. Like uh, one of the the crasser parts of it is that the the, the evil general is named Kale. Uh, and Pauline Kael was a very influential film critic in the 80s, I think, of the New York Times. And also the, the monster is called the uh, Ebor Sisk after Sisker, Siskel and Ebert. Jesus. Um, which that kind of stuff just feels super, super cheap and lame. Uh, the same thing happened in uh, the Godzilla movie that yes. Dean Roland Emmerich made where the mayor and his, his sycophant sidekick are named Siskel and Ebert. And that kind of shit is just so easy and, and, and stupid. That, that like, just... I get that. That just sets yourself up just to have the critics just destroy you. It's so petty. Yeah, I'd heard that about the the Godzilla movie, which is one of the worst things ever. Um, Oh, man. That's that's pretty funny. Because Lucas seems to have a a chip on his shoulder about, like, professional film critics. uh, I mean, he was so successful that he didn't really have to even worry about it. But being that that kind of, if you want to show up the critics, you make a good movie. You don't, like, make fun of them. In, in the movie, it just felt so, like you said, petty, um, which is one of the things that's really souring for me, not just because I've reviewed movies for a, for a, for a living before, but um, 
just the the kind of that it's it's a feels like a low blow and it just feels kind of like a high schoolish or even like elementary schoolish kind of a uh, name calling, which is really kind of off putting. The, the the word Ebarsisk is not used in the movie. Kale is easy enough to to misread it if you're if you're not familiar with the background there. But um, and Pauline Kale is like one of the most well respected film critics of all time. It's, so it feels really weird to be pulling her out and Siskel and Ebert out for or I guess are the names that people would recognize. But um, if you're gonna if you're gonna go after it, go after somebody who deserves to be uh, you know given a cheap shot. Um, that's definitely one of the worst things about the movie to me. It's a very small part of it, obviously, but uh, the background there is kind of uncomfortable. It's got that that Lucasian thing. I mean, he he also apparently was extra bitter after like Red Tails got panned. Um, so I think I think he's had that kind of thing for a while. Like he thinks he's I think he thinks he's a really good director and writer and everything, and it's like he really needs like uh, controlling influence around him to make good movies. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, look at, you know, Raiders Lost Ark and, and Indiana Jones, all the most of the best stuff that he's done has been with in collaboration with uh, um, uh, Steven Spielberg. And even, you know, Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, he he got out of the directing game pretty early on. He made American Graffiti and uh, THX 1138 and Star Wars. And then he kind of the, the fact that he started letting other people write his screenplays and direct his movies while he went to the background feels very it's a very bizarre kind of. Uh, trajectory for a career. Most people get to a point where they can actually do their own projects and they won't complete control. You see people like uh, Christopher Nolan writing screenplays and directing right. and having producing credits and everything like that. He re- really went the other way um, where he is producing. I guess he kind of thought he was the story guy who had really good story ideas and would let other people execute on them, um, which maybe also might have been kind of a, now that I not to get armchair psychologists, but maybe being the person in command of these movies, directing screenplay and everything else was said, maybe he was too afraid of the criticism that came from that kind of stuff. And he, he wanted other people to have some part of the blame when things didn't work out. That's very armchair psychologist. But um, if he was super committed to these ideas and bring them to the screen, he's obviously a technically proficient director. He, he can make compelling images, but um, the fact that he kind of went behind the scenes for so long made me feel like maybe he wasn't fully committed to what he was trying to do. I think some of it's like there. I mean, all the all things he said, and then he's just. I, I think he's a thing. He thinks he he thinks he should be in charge a lot of the time. And I think people have pointed that out that like he was given free reign with the Star Wars prequels, and like that's that's Lucas unrestrained, mm-hmm. and he doesn't like the idea that people point out that like no, you like you basically need to listen to other people to like edit your work down. Because there's stuff, there's stuff even in Willow that's like bears all the hallmarks. There's always like these, there's always sidekicks slash comic relief characters that like work and don't work to varying degrees. <laughs> the brownies, <laughs> yeah, like the, yeah. I'd say the brownies are not you know not as good as R two D two and C three PO, but they're less annoying than you know like a Jar Jar Binks for example. Which is they're the just cheapest, bizarre. Cheapest, like they're, they're yes, yeah. Uh, yeah, you're saying cheap. It's just a cheap effect. Uh, some of the matting and some of the compositing where they're they're interacting with the human characters is, is really bad. looks. <laughs> oh yeah, there's, some there's... of it looks technically pretty good for the time. Um, I was gonna say, but it's just bizarre. Like they they are comic relief. And to be fair, you say this about Jar Jar Banks. I saw Jar Jar Banks with a a six year old and an eight year old, and they love that character. Well, <laughs> I think I think. Lucas wants to, he has this kind of childlike streak where he wants to make movies that are entertaining for kids. And sometimes that doesn't always work. Like when I saw Ponyo, I mean, I love, uh, you know, Miyazaki, but um, Ponyo was very much a movie made for, for 
children and it wasn't super entertaining to me i think sometimes lucas gets tripped up by having to have these elements that appeal to kids that don't play at all for adults uh whereas a lot of you know really classic four quarter films et and you know uh, a lot of the pixar stuff they don't have to be that infantile about that about entertaining kids while also being able to entertain adults as well it's something that lucas never really kind of got uh, a firm grip on i would say I think it also feels it. It feels like there is a there's a there's a somewhat callous marketing like basis behind that, in that it's like we gotta we gotta have like a silly character comic relief. Like I'm, I should be wearing a plaid shirt for this, but there needs to be the kind of comic relief that the kids can really get a laugh at. I, I'm I'm sorry. I I did not oh. mind Jar Jar Binks. I thought Jar Jar Binks was funny. And I liked the brownies. Whoa. So, uh, whoa! <laughs> Saturday Friends Club coming apart. <laughs> I thought the brownies were hilarious. That's, they're like entertaining. They're just they're just odd in that like in a movie or which is already rotten with forced perspective, like they are an interesting element. Like yeah. I, I want to point out there there are there are regular people in this movie. There are little people who are regular. There are regular people who have been matted down, and then there are also regular people who are big. So. I yeah. <laughs> I have to say though though the one gag that really got me was having Willow and his uh, sidekick tied to the stakes on the ground, having a little person be in the Gulliver position, yeah, which yeah, Gulliver yeah. travels yeah, I totally is a thought that too. <laughs> pretty great gag. I mean, I got to give Lucas credit there for for maybe it was a Howard thing too or the screenplay writer, but have them tie the stakes on the ground like Gulliver was pretty inspired. Right. And if I can just rewind just a little bit back to this whole Jar Jar Binks kind of Go for comic it. relief character. <laughs> the thing that I could, uh, the, the kind of cusp of the question that I could gets to me at least is the difference between immersion and like a cheap uh, point of entertainment. And so I think like for, for some of us who really enjoy getting into the, uh, to the immersion of the world, being there, being in the world of Willow, being in the world of Star Wars, that kind of character just breaks the reality. It just throws everything on the loop, puts you, uh, completely, completely through this, through this weird luminous kind of state. And then, Oh wait, now we're back. Okay. Then I have to focus on getting back into the immersion. So it's just, it's that to me is like the biggest point of frustration is like trying to, uh, whether it, whether it be Lucas or whether it be you know whatever creative uh, force that's working in the in uh, uh, on Will that was working on Willow or that was working on the, the prequels, you know it was just seeing that immersion itself wasn't exactly the the goal and that's something that could have allowed the overall experience to be to be um, to be enriching for the for for younger viewers. I think the that what they were attempting to be. I mean they're 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 edited in and they're put in. They 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 served a particular function which was. Without the brownies, you the 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 movie is very like heavy. Like you need those moments where you lighten things up, and you could do it in a few different ways. But they decided that the way that they would do it is with these, you know, happy little funny high speaking slapstick characters, which works. Which you know definitely pulls in a younger audience. You know, the, the I know plenty of people that plenty of kids that grew up during you know the '90s that watched the prequels loved the prequels, and they said like, "No, we didn't mind Jar Jar Binks because to us he was just this funny talking, like weird looking alien, cartoon rabbit." Yeah. The, uh, if you, yeah. what I kind of think about when I when I look at the movie again was how little they actually. It must have been difficult. I, I feel bad for knowing who Kevin Pollock was. I have no idea who the other actor is, but like they have no real interaction with any of the other characters in terms of what they would have to actually be on set for. So most likely they were kind of off doing their own thing later on and kind of edited into the movie because they definitely built some sets just for the brownies. I, I definitely noticed some where they're walking through grass and that they are on a set 
walking through grass that is 12 feet tall uh, and doing this whole kind of thing. But there's no reason for them to have ever been on the same set or going to New Zealand or wherever they shot the movie. Uh, so I imagine it's mostly just these two poor, two poor actors like <laughs> off on their own in a, in a soundstage in London at some point, like yelling at the camera. Uh, and then they're not even using their real voices. They're probably like probably pitched up a little bit and then way pitched up and, and yeah. editing. Right. Um, so I just felt bad for having. Too it's bad. almost one of those. Yeah. It's almost one of those things where they could have been added in like as a reshoot just to make the movie flow better. But I, I don't think that's the case. But um, it's such a weird, weird. Have any of you ever seen the uh, the Hidden Fortress, the Kurosawa movie that that Lucas bases a lot of stuff on? I have not, but I I, I know I know the story for it and everything. So it's basically the same kind of two two uh, you know two characters kind of riding along aside all the people who are actually the uh, you know making the action move forward, um, and just kind of meek and and not doing much. So it's uh, another like I said another self referential squared kind of thing for Lucas. But uh, I do I. I'm actually really curious where this falls on Kevin Pollock's uh, career scale. If it's early for him or, or later on, I think he's been around before Willow, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, so, do we want to jump into just some of the uh, some of the points in the movie so we can cover? We've got the uh, the the prophecy with the baby with the special birthmark and the uh, the very generic evil sorceress queen uh, Mavroda. Mavroda. Thank you. Dalroga. Bav Morda. Bav Morda. Could not be more of a Maleficent stand in. She mm-hmm. also just like how much of this movie was just like the movie happens and then they cut to the like cut to the evil fortress and she's just like, Have you found the baby yet? No. Uh, Why can't you back. find the stupid baby? <laughs> like, I, there were like three scenes like that. Like, wait, is this how we're gonna do this the whole movie? <laughs> that is that is one of the failings of the movie that I find is that they have to retread themselves so many different times to illustrate like these points. Like the have you found the baby? No, we haven't found the baby. We'll get out there and find the baby. Or the screen wipe. N- the number of times it's just like, oh no, the baby's been kidnapped. We need to go get the baby back. Like. Things happen multiple times where it's just like, oh, you could make these moments like so much, like have more of an impact if you put some weight behind them. Yeah, and it's, yeah. I mean, there is a challenge inherent, and in you're trying, they're trying to sell a very broad fantasy world to an audience, but and but it did, yeah, it did seem like they did, they 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 hashed over that a lot, and it and like it no, it doesn't really pay off until the end. Yeah. Uh, so you have the uh, Elord Danan. There we go. Is the baby who pretty much gets taken by the midwife, put into the river in the world's most floatable piece of grass. Yeah, yeah. Um, floating down the river until we have the uh, the Lelwin, uh, Nelwin. There we go. Nelwin. Which is the uh, the actual name for the little people, the dwarves. Uh, and then we meet Willow Ulfgood, who is just Warwick Davis, and it's he's just a nice little man, Professor Flitwick. Charming. Uh, I mean, he was 17 when they shot this movie, and I, I was actually really impressed going back and looking. He's actually a pretty – I mean, all I know I, – I know he's a talented actor, but seeing him, he's very rarely has this whole face on. Uh, you know, in the, in the Harry Potter movies, he's well made up uh, in both of his roles or all of his roles. Um, actually really competent and actually really charming. No, he was he was really good during this. Like, he was – I will – as the lead character, he holds all the all the charisma that he would need for that part. Um, and whole the whole village too, like his wife and kids, super super cute. Oh the the God, kids yes. when they're when they're they're like, so freaking cute. And you're playing with a baby and everything like that. It was uh, it was just a really good start to a movie. Even if you know where it's gonna go from the first, you know, 
uh, scene is, you know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, Child of Prophecies. She's not going to get killed by the queen. Um, but the setup and the first like five minutes of the movie in that in that village are a really good kind of character work uh, that doesn't need to be done. Doesn't need you don't need to have the establishment of the the bully bully guy and and the, the the better warrior and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't really play into the rest of the movie, but uh, it's nice that they took the time to build up a little character for these people. Yeah, that 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 was another criticism that I have a little further into the movie, which is the fact that you have yeah those characters is just like oh I'm the bully you know politician that I'm just going to be here and I'm going to stay for about 10 minutes and then I'm going to leave. And yep. then, you know, it's going to be, we're going to have Val Kilmer show up and then he's going to vanish and then he's going to come back. And, you know, there's just a lot of this back and forth, which makes it like, okay, what character should I care about at well, this and, point? And who was Willow's, like the, the guy who sticks with him for a while? Uh, I forget, forget his name, but his, his kind of good friend. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought like, is this going to be like, again, because everything in this is also Lord of the Rings is like. Is he was Sam it, and Frodo? Yeah, yeah is it gonna yeah. be like a Sam and Frodo thing? But then he just kind of you know does his own thing. You don't have to say, buddy. Okay, I'm going home. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Are yeah. you sure? Okay, bye. Yeah, can you imagine if Sean, like halfway through the movie, Sam's like, "All right, see you later, Frodo." I mean, when I was wa- okay, I kind of had a neat surprise though when I was watching this because um, I didn't know that this guy was in this, but Phil Vonacaro, who's another little person actor showed up he was supposedly the best warrior in the village that at first they were like don't let him leave but the hello you leader guy you have to go i guess uh, warrior guy come with me i guess so he was in there and we had this movie i guess that was released the same year called ghoulies 2 on vhs when i was a kid so i watched ghoulies 2 a lot and phil fondacaro was one of the main characters in ghoulies 2 hmm. So when I saw him, I was like, oh, my God, I know who that is. And uh, there was another character I actually recognized, too. I don't remember what I saw him in before, but I'm pretty sure I saw him in a movie as well. Um, what I role just, did he play? I, I honestly don't know, but he looked really familiar, and I'm pretty sure I saw him in something before. But That, that is the terrible part. There are a billion characters that all show up, it. and it's like, hello, here's my name. Well, they've all got like weird fantasy names, or at least they're spelled like weird fantasy names. Yeah, that that's part of it. Uh, Val Kilmer's character, Mad Mardigan. I thought it was two words. Right. I thought it was Mad Mardigan, but no, it's all just together. <laughs> cool name though for a character, Mad yeah. Mardigan. I liked it. I I cannot for the life of me remember what uh, Joanna Wally's uh, character's name was. Sorsha. Uh, Sorsha. That was it. Sorsha. I mean, it's daughter of the Sorsha. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, apparently, it, I was reading through the trivia on IMDb, and apparently they, there were a bunch of books uh, that came out afterwards. It didn't. The movie wasn't good enough to. It didn't do well enough to have sequels. But apparently, uh, Sorsha was the daughter of the evil queen and the king of Tiras Lee, the uh, the the castle that was taken over and everybody was turned to stone. So I guess oh. a child of divorce. Apparently, huh. um, apparently Tiras Lee was was her her father's land, and I guess she was kind of torn between the evil queen and the and the good king. So it kind of explains why she flip flops a little bit, but. She goes pretty quick into oh, uh, assisting well, Matt Mardigan. Yeah. That must have been a pretty, must have been a pretty good kiss. Oh, man, that, <laughs> well, okay. I, I did. Did you read that? Apparently, that her and Val Kilmer got married like right after this movie. Yeah, so I can it, believe it. It happened. She got she got Kilmer like during as a character and as like an actress. Wow, oh, that's damn. hilarious. She got she got some of that and was just like, no, nope, we're gonna hang on here. <laughs> that haircut works out for for Val. It looks really good. Yeah, that braid in the front. It did. It's, uh, it's, 
he like he was like legolossing it like there was no tomorrow. Can you can you yeah. imagine you get to Top Gun and like he takes he takes his flight helmet off and even though it's like the military he just has those locks. <laughs> <that fall off>. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! The volleyball scene would have been totally different. Oh yeah. Oh gosh. Uh, but the um, yeah, that's that, I think that's the only other like as much as it sounds like I'm being super critical on the movie, I did enjoy it. But uh, that's the other thing. The Mad Mardigan Sorsha like love connection is the most sudden dumb. Like it seems like that she's never met a man that actually was interested in her before. Well, she's never met a Val Kilmer before. Oh, well, yes. all right, true. Well, I but don't the know. Val the uh, the love potion scene is you know slapstick and and comic to Lucasian extremes, but uh, I give Kilmer credit for selling that scene really well. He goes all in, um, and yeah, it's it's she that moment where she picks him up in the middle of the battlefield and just kisses him is dumb as hell, but it's also kind of kind of charming. It's hokey, but it's like, all right, listen, I'm in a big fantasy movie, and they're throwing stones in the air, and they turn into birds. Okay, let's go with this. And you have to think about it this way. If she's the daughter of the big bad sorceress, there's probably no man that that was, like, brave enough to be like, hey, I'm interested in you because they don't want to get in trouble if they, you know, I don't know, accidentally knock her up or something. (laughs) Yeah, could you imagine the kind of family politics that arise out of that? (laughs) Her prom was so bad. (laughs) It just speaks for her. Like as a, yeah, as a character, I, I, and her mom's willing to kill her as soon as uh, Kale says she's uh, turned on her. So it's, it's kind of doesn't even ask him for proof. Just says, okay, I guess she's dead to me now. So obviously, it's not a very loving relationship to no. begin with. No. She um, she is an evil sorceress. So yeah. and her mom doesn't trust her to find the baby. So it's it's pretty well established that uh, mom and daughter, even if she is her real daughter, it's it's not a, a loving relationship. So it's not too far fetched to believe that she'd turn on her, but. Um, also, you're being sent out to find a baby to kill. Like it's kind of, I would, I would have a. Even I, I love my mom, but I'd probably have some reservations. You'd have it. second doubts. You're like, hmm. If you're, even if if your boss is like, I need you to go find a baby for me to sacrifice. Like, you know, he might not be. He might not be totally on like on the straight and narrow. Yeah. Wait, I thought that's how Uber usually runs. Uh, well, oh. yeah, okay, yes, but. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, that's only like ninety five percent like exaggeration. Ethical and moral quandaries. <laughs> I, I I wanted to, I also wanted to point to something else that I really this really was I think the thing that stuck out most was I'm we're so used to Lord of the Rings where everything like all the set design and costume thing are done so well that it's like you go back and watch one of these movies and it's like everyone's got a plastic sword and they're wearing like yarn mail and it's like yeah the the, the I'm sure this was good for the time but I think that's one of the areas that did not age well for me is like the look of everyone's costumes. Like, every costume is just a little too ill-fitting and floppy. Well, Val Kilmer was wearing a dress for the longest time. Well, but that's like... I mean, just like the dudes running under armor, and it's... Or like, um, when she runs away from Val Kilmer after having, like, kicked him off his horse, and, like, her helmet is just kind of, like, flopping and moving around, and it's clearly made of, like, cloth. There was also uh, something that didn't age well for me at all was this, the score. Uh, I know James Horner is well-respected, but uh, the score in this was kind of way too on the nose. There there were moments of, like, comedy where it might as well have had, like, a, a sad tram- trombone coming in. Like, you know, it, was, <laughs> it was, you know, epic fantasy scores obviously are always going to be sweeping and swelling and everything like that. But it, it really felt like there was almost no subtlety at all in the music, uh, which was kind of something that, that definitely stuck out at me. Uh, watching it again after 20 years. It reminded me a lot of the stuff that James Horner has 
already done. Like, it sounded so similar to some of his other scores. Yeah, I had to actually, like, I did a second take when I was getting the, uh, the, the, the audio for our little, um, for our, the player that we play, you know, earlier in the show. And I was like, sweetie, is this, is this the same song? I don't know if this is, if this is from any of his other like soundtracks like, no, it's it so was, similar it was it it did sound a little bit like a mix between indiana jones and the goonies and i don't know some other movies I, he did i think we've learned anything it's that you know composer for movies like this when they find a formula that they like they stick with it as we discovered with with the never-ending story oh god yeah <laughs> Yeah, I mean, self-plagiarism is always going to be a thing for composers, especially. A lot of these people make two or three movies a year. Um, it's really tough not to repeat yourself. I mean, I'm not a musician, but I, I can. I have no problem with that. Uh, it, it was just kind of everything felt a little too unsubtle. It's right. like, hey, you're working with George Lucas. It's going to be kind of, you're not going to have a lot of uh, opportunities for, for stealthy, subtle kind of cues and late motifs and everything like that. Um, although, you know, John Williams stuff on Star Wars is fantastic, so I'm not sure where I'm com- coming at with that, but there were definitely moments where the score was distracting. Well, then again, John Williams is kind of the exception to the rule. Sure. The other thing that kind of pointed out to me was like where this came in Ron Howard's career. Uh, Ron Howard owes a lot to George Lucas, obviously. Um, he was in American Graffiti, and uh, I, I know they, I believe they've worked together before Willow and after American Graffiti, but Ron Howard didn't I mean, he made, before this, he made Cocoon and Splash, which were two just amazing hits. Like, holy shit, they were they were uh, fantastically big in the years that they came out. So Willow was not something that he really probably had to do. But I guess if you're if you're going to work with anybody who's on a hot streak, uh, George Lucas might, about, well, might as well have been the one. Um, but it doesn't really, there's not a huge amount of, like, Ron Howard. I don't know, is it, is it unfair to say that Ron Howard, I, I don't always see that there's like a, a directorial kind of signature for him. I, I, I've seen a lot of Ron Howard movies and I've, I've liked a lot of them too. But, uh, you know, Spielberg has that kind of, you know, you're watching a Spielberg movie pretty early on. But Ron Howard just kind of feels like he makes well-executed uh, popular entertainment uh, without much of a kind of too much, well, signature feel. Yeah, and Willow kind of strikes me as being right down that kind of alleyway. Like, I don't really get any sense of Ron Howard-ishness from this movie at all. It's well done, it's well put together, it's well technically crafted, but it wasn't, uh, it definitely feels like more of a thing that I associate with George Lucas, which is probably unfair considering Ron Howard did direct it, but I'm assuming we're kind of probably on the same page about that. I, I know, yeah, I think we, we get what you're saying. And I, I am glad that he stopped listening to Lucas and, and otherwise like mid-90s, like we watch Apollo 13 and there's like two annoying children who've stowed away on like on the lander. Yeah. I mean, he's he's had an amazing career. It's uh, movies he made after us, Backdraft, The Paper, all, all this stuff is is pretty well done. Uh, I mean, I think he, like I said, I think he's the Da Vinci Code stuff. I think he's making like really really big movies, but he he has some of the projects he's picked have been have been pretty compelling. But uh, Willow just seems to be a weird odd man out. <laughs> I don't think he's done any fantasy or really much genre before or after either. Uh, you can consider um, Da Vinci Code to be. Angels and Demons to be kind of, you know, I, I don't even think those would be considered to be um, genre at all. I, I guess he did do Han Solo. He's picking up Han Solo after the the other directors were fired, which would be, it looks like his first return to genre since Willow, which is kind of crazy. Um, well, he called maybe, Warwick Davis and like, we need, like, I need you for this one. Oddly enough, it was really weird. Val Kilmer did an AMA on Reddit slash movies uh, in the middle of this week. 
And he said that Lucas was trying to get Ron Howard to do the next Star Wars, which I'm not sure if he was referencing trying to get Ron Howard to, to pick up the slack for the Han Solo movie and he just wasn't up on that had already happened. Or if he's actually trying to say that George Lucas was trying to get Ron Howard to do one of the upcoming Star Wars movies. And my kind of implication was that when Lucas sold Star Wars to Disney, that he was kind of going to be the the crazy uncle who they kind of like take his calls, but they don't actually do anything. But now I, I think Lucas is on set with Ron Howard directing Warwick Davis on the Han Solo movie oh boy. in one of the pictures. So I guess Lucas is still around and, and kind of kicking in the Star Wars universe. I, I was under the impression that when Disney bought it, he would be kind of cut out entirely and they would take it all over. But hmm. um, it hmm. seems like Ron Howard and, and Lucas still have that kind of relationship to the point where Lucas is pushing for him to pick up on Han Solo, which is has the potential to be a disastrous movie or really good. I have no idea at this point. Uh, it's such a bizarre thing to think about. Yeah, it's it could be. I mean, it, I think it's one of those things. Is like I think the, the less Lucas has total control, the less damage he'll do. And he's good in certain areas, but like he should not be like the one man director producer squad that you make to get to make your movie. I mean, it's just weird. Uh, I I don't know. I for the background of anybody who hasn't heard this before, the Han Solo movie that they're shooting now uh, with the actor, the actor who is in um. Hail Caesar. I don't know if anybody saw that. The the young country singer is fantastic young yeah. actor. I think Baby Driver too. But uh, the original directors were fired and replaced by apparently Ron Howard. And I guess George Lucas is back in behind the scenes too. So weird. I've it's like I said before. I have no idea how that movie's going to turn out. All I'm saying it might be Willow too. <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden, some brownies show up, and you're like, God damn it! I, I like the idea that Warwick Davis shows up on set and they're just like they're like dusting off his Ewok costume and just like, oh god, no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna roll guys. I'll see you later. So he must have been like twelve. I think he was like eleven or twelve on the set of Return of the Jedi, which is when he obviously met George Lucas. And uh if I recall correctly, he that was about the time that Lucas started developing this film and wanted Warwick Davis for it the entire time, which is kind of sweet. Wow. Um mm. but could have been better, shall we say. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the idea of a sequel to Willow, because that has been floated around for a while. Uh, 2015, uh, or actually 2013, Val Kilmer posted that it was right around the corner, uh, and that was a fit, that was a hoax. Um, and that then, was about the time that Val Kilmer's career was kind of like not doing great either. I, I remember Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. He I got a lot of heat for, but I don't. I haven't looked at his IMDb, IMDb page recently, but uh, it was kind of in a slack period. Uh, he's not entirely on the on the upswing at this moment. No, he did that like uh, in like I think that was still '90s. He did that movie, The Isle of Doctor Moreau, like the 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 remake of that, which is apparently yep. one of the worst movies ever made. Oh. And he he made that like he was being served divorce papers as he was like on his way to go film it. So that movie that that really shows. So I don't yeah I don't think he's been. I don't think the I don't think the killer's been like up on things lately. Let's see. He's playing Mark Twain and Walter from the Super. So okay, a few things. The Snowman, which if that isn't a like horror movie, then it's missing out. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, and the so basically the other idea is that Warwick Davis stated that if there was a sequel, his hope would be that it would not be a. Uh, a remake, but it would be continuing the story of Willow and actually just showing, you know, showing like what happened to him. Did he actually become a sorcerer? Uh, answering the eternal question of how can he be a sorcerer if he's learning spells, et cetera, so forth. Right. Mm -hmm. I, think it's, I think there were 
some comic books or books and uh, novelizations that came out after the movie um, as well. I think he wrote it, some with Chris Claremont. Uh, I did not touch those with a 10-foot pole. Um, I don't I don't dislike Willow, but I, I believe there were some novels, and I, I, I'm sure there's some plots in there that, that would explain some of this stuff, but um, I, yeah. Yeah, Shadow Moon, Shadow Dawn, and Shadow Star were the novels. The, the story is like, as a, especially as a movie, it works, but like, I was. I don't think this is like compelling enough to spin off into its own like extended universe. You're you're not thinking about know. making I a think Willow. It could work. No Willow D and D campaign. It's just like. Well, I mean, it's it's like it is. It's it's a fairly generic fantasy movie that kind of it's you know the Lucas take on Lord of the Rings is what it feels like. Right. It just kind of blends into the mesh of typical high fantasy caricature. Yeah. So I mean, I I, I enjoy. I did actually enjoy the movie, and it was like, oh, well, I've seen Willow now. But uh, I, I, I don't know. I can't see this one. High praise. Yeah, should go yeah. in the box. <laughs> oh, I, see it now. I have seen it's it. It's a fantasy thing. Yeah. I, mean, I have witnessed this series of moving images. I was just I was just sitting through it, and for me, I just had this feeling of like, man, I could be watching Lord of the Rings. It like there there were a lot of shots that like I'm I'm wondering if how much Peter Jackson was trying to like tip towards this movie because there were a lot that was similar i mean that end shot where they're pulling away from the village and it's just you know they've got the village there and the nice like the neat looking like spires of rock and i'm going like that is just straight at, that yeah. feels so much lord of the rings but I, that's because i'm just used to that opposed to willow i you mean know, it did this did come out way before lord oh of the i know rings actually well they out, actually so. i was gonna say you know they actually were trying to make lord of the rings in like the 70s there was like I, yeah. I don't think it ever they made got an animated one. Well, yeah, they, that's right. Or no, no, no. One. There was gonna be there. There were there were directors and writers trying to make a live action version. In yeah, the, the Tolkien estate was uh, very much uh, opposed to almost everything for a long time. I think they right. they were always litigious about that kind of stuff. Hmm. Um, but uh, the one, yeah, I mean, you couldn't make a Lord of the Rings movie, so there was a lot of there were a lot of clones, uh, a lot of a lot of people riffing on that. Uh, I'm trying to. There's another one that I'm trying to think of. I, if you ever read the books, the Sword of Shannara books by uh, Terry Terry Brooks, I want to say Sword of Shannara, one to one copy of Lord of the Rings. It's amazing, and I think MTV actually wound up greenlighting a series based on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, Lord of the Rings. You know, nobody's gonna one of the most influential fantasy now, the most influential fantasy novel of all time, obviously, yeah. and one of the most influential novels. Period. In terms of uh, its impact on genre. Uh, filmmaking and, and writing and everything like that for, for the last 80 years or whenever since it came out, but um, you couldn't do anything with it. A lot of people wanted to try. I've heard the same stories that you probably have too, but uh, it, I don't know what Peter Jackson did to make those work, but even he had problems with that estate and uh, Tolkien's son was very uh, still a, a lot of lawsuits based on that kind of stuff. So in the end, if you're going to make a, you can, might as well make Willow yes. instead <laughs> of The Hobbit um, and just try to kind of wink wink everybody knows what i'm doing here it's like, like uh, it's like like the hobbit a more put upon frodo and a more like doofusy aragorn in this what movie. i hated about the end of this movie though they never answered the question did his crops come in were they planted <laughs> is he gonna lose the farm he comes back home and everything everybody's happy to see him which is great but he's probably in serious debt he's probably gonna get like you know that that bully guy is gonna own his farm he's just gonna like, never I mean, answer that question this is the most compelling part of know, the, film, he, the economic a, question he's got a spill book and a pony now i though, mean yeah, so. he, yeah he came back knowing how to do magic so i would assume he would just take the apprenticeship for the for that the I, I like how he, i like how he summons a dove and it just immediately shits <laughs> <laughs> That was awesome. <laughs> like, uh, I, I, the I other... found the setup funnier than the gag. 
The other funny part that I, I was reading the the trivia, and I don't know if this is true or not, but apparently when the baby throws up on that bully character's face, it's actually real. Uh, They're oh, actually God. picking up. Uh, the baby was very upset from walking around all day, and apparently did throw up. And that the gag seemed like a very Lucas kind of you know lowbrow humor thing, and I doubt that that that's actually true, but. Um, it's a funny story at any rate. The other person I want to call out for for doing a good j- job in this movie is the person who did all the cutaway shots of Laura Dan and uh, her face and her reactions yes. to everything that's going around are really, really well done. You know they probably just recorded her playing with a, a doll for like three yes. days and had to do the backgrounds behind it, but the editing of her reaction shots into the uh, into the action, super well done. Yeah, like they, they got some good facial reactions oh, yeah, from it's, her. It's like all B-roll, baby roll. So good. I was like, oh my god, this baby's too freaking cute. <laughs> yeah, and the other uh but the other side of that too as well is the really obvious uh stunt doubles and uh mannequins. Oh, like if, yes. you, oh yeah. if you rewatch that uh the scene where they're going down the hill, the snowy hill on the, the yes. shield, yep. it is a stunt man with a big stiff uh half size doll in front of him with a baby doll in front of that doll. Yes, it was, it was so obvious. Dolls yeah. and dolls. Oh, can we talk about their dogs? Go for yeah. it. <laughs> oh that my is. god, they look like giant rats. It was obviously a dog wearing this yes. rat suit. It was a very Rock good boy. Models, apparently. <laughs> and and you like you couldn't even focus on their faces because I guess maybe the makeup or the mask or whatever <laughs> they had on was so bad they never focused that hard on the dog's faces because they'd be like, oh, people are going to be like, oh, that's not any good. So I, you never uh, clearly see them. Yeah, our horses are normal, but our dogs are really fucked up. Uh, <laughs> it's, well, it's like, I, I, again, watching Lord of the Rings has just totally spoiled me to it. It's like, how do you deal with fantasy animals back in this era? And it was like, the only two options you had were this, where you dress up a dog and it looks really good, hokey, or you do like a never-ending story where the animal just exists as a head puppet and some paw puppets. Mm-hmm. And it's but, also hokey. But th- they never okay in the movie. I don't remember them like in, when I read it, when I read it on Wikipedia. They gave them a specific name, but in in the movie they just called them the dogs. They were like, "Release the dogs, send out the dogs." That's all they yeah. ever say. But so when like big rats. so when this thing came out, I was like, "That's not a dog. It's a dog in a costume." Yeah, I don't know why they couldn't just get actual dogs. Like those would be, still be pretty menacing. Yeah, They're, and just like this, the, the head doesn't quite move. It, it reminds me call back to our first episode uh, for Stargate. Stargate, yeah. When the big yep. animal comes out and it's like very clearly, oh, yeah. a, a very clearly a horse with like a costume draped yeah. over it. Right. And it didn't help that their tails, they made, gave them like extra long rat tails oh, so the tail yeah. would just flop behind them <laughs> yes. as they were running. Yes. <laughs> so, um, but to be, so the opposite end of that is the Ebor Sisk, that two-headed monster, yes. that stop motion thing. Oh yeah. Uh, right. That was, that was really terrifying when I was a kid. Uh, yeah. That thing, it, obviously, looking back on it now, it's very much a stop motion uh, creature that nobody's really interacting with. But, uh, oh, well, in between those two steps are the trolls. Oh, my uh, God. Those <laughs> were that, terrible. That got, I, I laughed so hard. It's just like, wait, are they being attacked? It's like Planet of the Apes. Are these monkeys? I, they snuck in yeah. for another movie. Jeez. I don't really have much to say about the trolls, but <laughs> I, I like when they go face to face with them and the trolls just like Bleh! and just like scream. They just like scream at you and, ah! and they do like shot reverse shot of screaming and then they like punch each other. <laughs> it was the C for effort trolls. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that felt like kind of the 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 budget had run out and we have to find a way to make 
because trolls in you know in Lord of the Rings are very specifically large and intimidating and everything like that, and these right. are just like dudes in a monkey suit who shit on the ground. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it felt like so they had kind of uh, you know built up the the oh I'm, I'm I hate trolls very early on in the movie, and when they show up, it is just laughably ridiculous. Well, why does he hate trolls? Do trolls invade their like dumb village too? I think they're like a pest. I like guess. a very dangerous pest, if I Just can guess. Right. Du- dudes in monkey costumes. <laughs> well, plaguing our village. Yeah, it happens that the planet of the apes is right next <laughs> yes, door. Yes. It's the next continent over. <laughs> I imagine in the canon they're a lot more terrifying. I, yeah. I also like I I like blinked and missed the part, and so he just like zaps a troll and it turns into a weird like John Carpenter monster. Well, no, no, no. What he did is he, I think he used the transformation spell on the troll and yep. he did this weird reversal thing. And then you see two heads start to pop out of it. And then he goes, Ugh, and he kicks it into the, yeah, the, but, the oh, mower. It, the it turns into a, like a bloody like brain egg. Yeah, thing. can we talk about yeah. that nightmare fuel? Holy yeah. crap. That, I was saying that's like straight out of a, like a thing or something. But that's what turns into the two headed monster that pops out of the moat. Oh, no, I've tracked yep. that. But I, I missed the initial part. All I saw was like, he zaps a troll and then it like becomes John Carpenter's thing. Yeah, it does like a re- weird like inside out movement is what happens. It happened. does, yeah. It's it's a fucked up spell. He's trying to <laughs> I, I, I don't think he, he knows what he's doing and he try, tries to transform it and it does not work out at all. It's very bizarre like why does it suddenly have two heads? Why does right. the skin come off of it? Uh if he's been if he's been I guess he's both threatened and trying to come to grips with his master of spells. Um, it's it's pretty screwed up that that monster is, uh, but hey, it gets it gets Mad, Mad Morgan and and Shosha together in the end. I keep <laughs> on wanting to say Shusha, mm. like the Brazilian host, but um, I like I don't know, um, yeah, and then some of the animal transformations in general, like um, what was I, I completely forgot what is the the sorcerer's name, the good one, Rav Ravi Ravioli. 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 Yeah, I like I liked her like, no, it's like co- Raviel or something. continually becoming more like different animals, which was fun. I she said it a lot like uh Sabrina, I forget. Uh did you play the version of Loom with Is it Finn Razil? Yes. She Rezil. sounds like she sounds like Cigna. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She oh does. Bobbin. That kind of like crone old woman English voice. Well, she mm. starts off as okay, they just say possum, but it's actually a common Brushtail possum, which is from Australia, and they are so cute. I, yeah, a, there was a lot of peanut butter used in this movie. Oh my god! I like. I was sad when they turned when she had to be transformed and she turned into the the raven or whatever. But then I was happy I was like, when the, she was a goat because goats are funny. But the possum was so cute. I do also give this movie a lot of credit for having two old ladies beat the crap out of each other at the end. That was, yeah, that uh, was you always, interesting. You always kind of expect to see, you know, I guess Mad Morgan and Kale, they have their, their little fight, which is not very compelling. It's not well done. It's not no. compared to like lightsaber fights in the prequels that it was kind of a lame uh, last fight. But <laughs> seeing two old lady uh, sorceresses just just going at it was yeah. was pretty entertaining. Not from any kind of purient view, but like it's it's an odd choice to end your movie with. And it it kind of played. It kind of worked out. The trick that Willow does at the end to make uh uh, the evil lady, is super scared, kind of, kind of fun. It's kind of a fun ending. It's yeah. it's fun. It's kind of also that silly, like, oh no, and then I'm gonna stumble back into this thing and it's gonna obliterate me. Ah, but you know, it it yeah. It's a lot of lot of styrofoam flying around. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Let's who, see. Who was uh who was there? Her like the the main evil assistant who like had the skull mask. That's Kale. That's Kale. That's Kale. Okay, I liked the moment when like. I didn't realize the two characters, but like when when they bust into the house in that like the village in the mountain, 
and he's got Willow, and he just comes in with this like, like face and this giant beard. And then later he like pulls over and like, oh, that's the skull guy. And so like, I couldn't take him seriously for the rest of the movie. He's oh. just got the world's largest mutton chops. Yeah, just... and he's like mouth on the side of his face, just like, and like talking like this. Yeah, he was interesting. All right, well, uh, let's see. Let's go ahead and finish. Any last thoughts before we give our final impressions on Willow? Apparently, tough to find now. Like, it's not not easy to find on on streaming and everything like that. I I, I guess this is not one of those. Kind of Lucas is is actively trying to uh, archive for future generations. But I'm always uh, surprised to hear when these 80, 80s movies are, are difficult to find. But um, probably, if you haven't seen it. You're probably okay. Yeah. <laughs> final, final. Just, we'll just we'll just wait for the inevitable Willow Christmas special. I mean, at the, oh, at, oh god. I mean, at this time, as far as I could tell, there was plenty of rips on YouTube. Like so, oh, yeah. That that's out there for, and those will get taken down as if somebody actually cares enough to start DMCAing them. Uh, but it's hard to find legal. Yeah, illegal versions yeah. are are not easy to find. We I think in my search, I was able to find a legal version. If you are able to get it off of the UK Amazon site, you can stream it. But it's like otherwise, it's very hard to actually find a real version of it. The Brits know good cinema. <laughs> that they do. Uh, let's see. Uh, so let's let's take it. Um, start over on the other side of the room, Eric. What was your feeling? Uh, I felt it was it was fun. I think if you're a fan of these like '80s fantasy movies, if you like, like it's it's better than Lady Hawk, um, and like <laughs> oh come on, Lady Hawk's a classic. Uh, like I don't know, like you just get like a whole movie of just Rutger Hauer creeping on Michelle Pfeiffer, um, <laughs> and like what God Matthew Broderick affecting this like terrible accent. Um, but anyway, yeah, if you're a fan of those '80s kind of move like '80s fantasies, especially if you like '80s Val Kilmer. Uh, he's all over this. He's shirtless. He's in a dress. He's jumping all over the place. Um, but yeah, I thought it was fun. I I I I don't feel strongly either way about it. Martin, I was spoiled by Lord uh, by Lord of the Rings. So by the time we I just went, cannot to... use Lord of the Rings no, as an example. No, it's, when it's, uh, that's that's a modern movie. I know, but I just like. Uh... Ever since, ever since watching it, you just have this like lens that has been shunned, shunned. Oh my God! Tell me more about George Orbit. Wow! <laughs> you cannot compare an '80s movie to friggin' Lord of the Rings. Well, I'm Can sorry. And did all right, Sabrina. I'm gonna guess you you enjoyed yourself. I enjoyed it. Yes, there were a lot of issues. It did not age very well, but you know, it is again one of those '80s fantasy classics that you know is just something I. It, it, that was like a big genre that I loved watching Ooh. when I was a kid. So. I, did, I did have a thought. If 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 anyone has ever seen, uh, there's an episode of Mystery Science Theater called Quest of the Delta Knights. Uh, that that movie is very crappy. And yeah, the David of, Warner one, right? Yes, David double David Warner. Yeah, uh, and which he appears multiple times in the same scene as different characters. Good idea. Um, that movie is 100 just a total ripoff of Willow. Like there's certain shots and sets and things that are just straight up copied. Wow, you have to wonder if these sets are just still sitting in New Zealand. I'm sure that, just hey, just hanging out there, like oh, okay. just in the back of Pinewood Studio somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Like oh, okay. Anyway, I just I just thought about that. Like this movie, actually, you know, I take it back. Willow needed more David Warner. That's all, <laughs> that's all I had to say about it. Anything else, Sabrina? Or is that uh? No, I forgot what I was going to say. Now. <laughs> Good. Since I was so rudely interrupted. You're right. That was wrong of me. <laughs> Damn it, Eric. Uh, I will state that it, I'm happy that I saw the movie. I'm not sure if the, I think this is this checks the box. I'm not sure if the, I will ever feel like checking the box a second time. 
Um, but I think like it was like okay, cool. Like it's just it's a it's a enjoyable eighties fantasy movie. Um, you know that I'm just like yeah, you know it's, it's it's very pretty. I think the visuals hold up for the most part. You know, big rubber creatures and you know some mm-hmm. some bad like some things that don't hold up like visually the cinematography that all still looks very good you know in 2017 yeah uh so i'm happy that i saw it for that and uh finally um you know matt what what do you think coming back to this snow crawl snow crawl (laughs) (laughs) well we're, we're gonna have to have you back for that one then yeah definitely i mean crawl is crawl is a very special Dumb, dumb, dumbass movie. Uh, <laughs> Willow, Willow is kind of too. I, I would say Crawl is very sincere. Uh, it feels like a movie that is is more. They meant to do something grand. Uh, Willow just kind of seems like I'm going to make Star Wars again. It's not going to be as good. Hope you show up uh, and and enjoy it for what it is. But it didn't have that for all Val Kilmer and and Warwick Davis are talented actors. Like uh, the the you can't go back and try to find like Carrie Fisher and and. Uh, um, Harrison Ford and, and Mark Hamill like doing their things again. That was mm-hmm. such an integral part. Star Wars, at its essence, is pretty dumb too. Uh, it's it's a movie that could have been done really really poorly had he not had the kind of actors there uh, to to make those lines kind of kind of work. Um, Willow, the script is not. I don't remember. Uh, I even have a hard time remembering the characters' names, um, which is not a good sign. Uh, the script is really derivative. Uh, there's some talented acting and. Even Ron Howard is still trying to find his footage footing as a as a director. Uh, I don't think he's. There's probably a reason he hasn't done any genre stuff since. Um, as a whole, it's kind of a half baked pie. It doesn't really work. Um, worth worth seeing for for novelty's sake or for seeing where these people came from. But uh, don't bother going out and thinking it's going to be great. Yeah, it's just if you if you are bored and it's there, I you know it's it's worth watching. I think for the most part, but you know it's it's there's tons to watch as well. Yeah, true that. All right, well you know that takes us to the end of this episode. Matt, thank you so much for coming and bringing Willow to us. Thanks for having me. It's oh, yeah. it's been fun. Uh, you can go as said find uh, Matt over at Giant Bomb. Uh, you can also watch him pet puppies on his Tumblr. <laughs> Indeed, properly petting puppies. If you Google that, you'll find it. I, I really appreciated the way in which you just properly pet those puppies. I mean, I just was there. I could imagine and myself being there, petting the puppies. And apparently eating them. And I, no, <laughs> absolutely not. It's a full... He chops the puppies. He, he chops those puppies. You chop a little bit. <laughs> I mean, I understand that you want to get a taste of the puppy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> listen, if that puppy's just cute, you got to chomp that. Like, <laughs> so... Anyway, thank you very much, Matt. It's been a pleasure, and hopefully we can have you on for another one. Do uh, do some more of these with you. You are a fantastic guest for us, and uh, welcome to the club. Thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, that will take care of us for this episode. Uh, next episode, uh, it's that's going to either between be between City of Lost Children or The Secret of Nim. Oh so, so we get to uh, we get to decide between those two bangers. A lot of dark fantasy today. I know ah. it's just it's a weird collection that we've got going here, but you know it's all our fault. So yeah, indeed. No. Uh, but you can go ahead and find us. We over we are over at satfriendsclub.com, uh, over on Twitter at satfriendsclub as well. Uh, we do have our Patreon going, and thank you to our Patreon subscribers over there for keeping us going and uh, giving us a little bit for putting out the show for us. Uh, I should be com- uh, making another pre-show collage collection coming up very soon, so look out for that. All of the things not fit to record. Yes, all, the, all the all the blackmail material of the stuff that we say <laughs> before the show that will get me in lots and lots of trouble. 
Um, and yeah, you can go ahead and take care of that, and we will uh, we will be that. We will be back next week with another uh, wonderful movie experience for you to enjoy. Uh, till then, sleep well, everyone. Bye. Good night and good luck. Good night. <laughs>